hi and welcome to another episode of catholic mindset where we create catholic content for catholics today we have father alfred chioffi associate professor of biology and bioethics at saint thomas university father chioffi has been a priest for over 37 years his professional interests are in human life bioethics environmental bioethics and on the dialogue between science and religion. Today, we're going to be talking about bioethics. Father, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity, Alejandro. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for responding uh, to, my, to my email so quickly. So it's awesome to have you on the show. Before we begin, would you mind leading us into prayer? Absolutely. My pleasure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Blessed Trinity, we love you, we adore you, and we thank you for all your many blessings. In the midst of the difficulties of our daily life, we know, Lord, that you are with us, that you are with us every step of the way. Bless our interview tonight, bless all your people, and we pray in a very special way for those who are in most need of your divine mercy. This we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. My pleasure. So we have a beginning question for you, mm-hmm. like a little bit of an icebreaker question. Yep. What does your heart most desire? Well, I'll tell you, Alejandro, um, I've been around on this planet for almost uh, seven decades now, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of uh, transitions in my own life and the people around me. And like you say, been in the priesthood for more than half of my lifetime. So what I most desire really right now in the depths of my heart is that every human being be saved and may be able to attain eternal life with our good Lord, because that is our ultimate destiny for each one of us. I I love these icebreaker questions. Thank you. Thank (laughs) Thank you. you. So let's dive right in. What is bioethics? Okay, so bioethics is what we call an emerging field, is a growing field today and is thoroughly interdisciplinary. You see that the word is actually a compound word. It's got biology and it's got ethics. And if we take them apart, those two different areas of study have, in principle, nothing to do with each other because biology is the study of life, life on earth. And we talk about organic life. In other words, not the life of the saints or the life of angels or the Trinity, but organic life here on earth as it develops uh, materially. And then ethics is one of the branches of philosophy together with metaphysics, ontology, aesthetics, logic, right? It doesn't really have any direct connection with uh, organic life. And yet we see that because of the human and because of the human intellect and will, bioethical issues arise, all right? For example, uh, human cloning or stem cell research. Uh, Many of the questions in bioethics are driven by technology and technology keeps advancing. So what used to be science fiction in the past is uh, doable in the lab today see, or also in the field, in in the environment. And so these ethical questions arise, but there are ethical questions that um, presume a certain background of uh, biology and life and nature so that we can address them with competence, all right? 
And speaking of competence, I want to say from the start that uh, I have been educated way beyond my capacity because I have been sent for further studies twice. As we say in the priesthood, when the bishop sends us for further studies, the first time I went to Rome and studied and got a doctorate in moral theology with the Jesuits at the Gregorian University. And then later I was sent for further studies again. Uh, this second time I went to Purdue in Indiana and got a doctorate in genetics. So now I have the theological and I have the scientific, both terminal degrees. And so that gives me competence really to speak about these issues, these bioethical issues. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is the most prominent bioethical issue right now? Okay, we can look at bioethics and there are two main pillars or areas, if you will, of bioethics uh, today. One has to do with human life bioethics and the other one is environmental bioethics. So in human life bioethics, we look at uh, certain topics, for example, the beginning of human life, the end of human life, and also within in healthcare, all right? And then in environmental bioethics, of course, the whole issue of uh, climate change and uh, our impact on the environment. So one way or another, it comes back to the human because of our free will precisely. Now I say that uh, a functional definition of bioethics, right? Is what uh, may be done out of what can be done in science and technology today. So let's take that apart a little bit because can and may is not just a grammatical distinction. Can and may may be a distinction between life and death for some people, depending on where they are on the issue or one side uh, of the issue or the other. So again, what may be done out of what can be done. We can do many things um, with contemporary technology. For example, there's a problem in the Ukraine right now, right? So we could take care of that problem if we uh, drop a few nuclear bombs in Moscow and other selected uh, Russian cities, right? We can do it. Why? Because the F-1 bombers are flying overhead as we speak right now. And those airplanes that are loaded with nuclear warheads are so sophisticated, they don't even land for refueling or for changing um, pilots. They refuel in the air and they change pilots in the air to keep them going 24 seven, all right? So we can bomb uh, Russia right now with nuclear warheads, but should we do it? May we do it? And I hope that uh, all of us who, all those who are hearing this will say we should not do that. <laughs> Uh, because um, that would uh, kill uh, millions of innocent people and also will contaminate at least that part of the world with uh, nuclear radioactivity for decades, maybe centuries, all right? So even though we can do it, we should not do it. We may not do it. And that's the critical distinction there. So that's when we apply that to nature, that's a bioethical distinction, all right? And again, because technology is advancing so fast, many times what happens is the technological capability is there, like I mentioned, human cloning, for example, but uh, 
then we have to catch up on the ethics of it because uh, there are things that uh, we should definitely not be doing, even though we have the capacity to do them. Got it. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to human life, you mentioned the beginning, right? Which is which is something that we're seeing all over the place about when does life begin and so what should exactly. we do? There's abortion. There's all these things. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So that's one challenge, the beginning of human life. The other one is the end of human life. We can take a little bit of time to look at uh, each one of these areas, right? So this is obviously an overview because of the uh, short time. But let's say the beginning of human life. And people to this day still question, when does life begin? But you know, that's actually a biological question. That's an organic question because life begins when it does, whether we understand it or not, whether we accept it or not. And life begins at fertilization for the animals and even the plants that reproduce sexually. All animals and plants that reproduce sexually, that means that there is an egg and a sperm that fuse together to form a new cell. That new cell is called a zygote. And that zygote is the beginning of that new individual. And that new individual has 50% of the genetic material from its father and 50% uh, from its mother. So it's a new genetic individual, but of the same species. So life begins at fertilization, uh, whether it's human or (laughs) non-human. It's the same for a kangaroo or for a giraffe or an orangutan, all right? Life begins Mm -hmm. at fertilization. And so we say in common language, conception. Conception is uh, equivalent to fertilization. So life begins at conception and we are no exception. In fact, you open any biology book and you see that uh, fertilization and the zygote is the beginning of the new individual. For some reason, all of a sudden, we we forget or we don't understand how it is that life begins at conception for the human. But it's true because organically we are mammals, all right, and we part we're part of the animal kingdom. So with that premise that life begins at fertilization or conception, and then we develop for nine months within our mother's womb. Obviously, there are stages of development, right? Even a newborn is not an adult. A newborn has to now go 15, 20, 25 years until adulthood, right? And so that newborn is still growing also, different stages of development. But life begins at fertilization. Now, for example, that's at the organic level, at the biological level. Where does the ethics come in? And I said that ethics is part of philosophy, right? Well, uh, it also includes logical, rational thinking. We can say, well, maybe the human embryo is not fully human. Maybe it's only partially human because it's so tiny and doesn't have all the organs in place and the brain is not developed. Well, stages of development, but there's no stage in our life where we change from one species to another. So we're always human from fertilization. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if we accept the premise that an embryo is not fully human because he or she is not fully developed, then we would have to say by analogy, the same argument is that a newborn is not fully human either because he or she is not fully developed either. Uh, A teenager is more developed than a newborn and an adult is more developed than a teenager. So we would have to say also that a teenager is not fully human, which is not logical, is not consistent, it's, it's not a rational argument. So we try to use in bioethics what we call arguments of logical consistency. If a newborn is fully human, even as a newborn, 
undeveloped yet, right? Not fully developed. Then a minute before or a minute after birth is just a change of location <laughs> inside the womb or outside the womb, but it's essentially the same baby. Then some people say, yeah, but a state of dependency, you know, the, the unborn is connected to the mother. So we can consider that like a parasite and the mother has a right to kill the parasite inside of her. I know it's a repugnant argument, but some people actually use it, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, again, that's where the biology comes in. A parasite by definition is always a different species. You know, individuals of the same species do not parasite each other, parasitize each other, right? Worms are parasites, but they're not human. <laughs> so uh, one human cannot be a parasite for another human. So again, the biology and the philosophy have to dovetail to make the full argument and give us a full picture. So that's just one example. And of course, then if we accept the, the fact that the unborn is a human life and needs protection and so forth, then that uh, makes the whole argument, right, uh, for pro-life, basically. Mm -hmm. And when you when you prepare these, these classes or these teachings, is the class just solely bioethics or is it mixed with all these things just like we're doing now? What are the foundations? Right. I'm glad you mentioned the classes because I also want to uh, put in here that um, about six years ago, I launched a master's in bioethics at St. Thomas University, precisely. And it's uh, 30 credits and it's a total of eight courses. We do two courses per semester. So in four semesters, a person can do this whole program. So it takes a little over a year, basically, and it's four semesters continuous. I mentioned that because the cohorts that I've had, and typically they're small cohorts, they average seven or eight students per cohort, is uh, they are very varied in background, all right? The cohorts are anywhere from medical doctors, nurses, to teachers, housewives, deacons, priests, you name it. It's a very varied background of students. Uh, some are more on the scientific side, some are more on the philosophical, theological side, and some are no particular expertise uh, in, their, in their studies. And so I provide all of the necessary background. That's precisely because uh, I have those two terminal degrees. So I always provide the necessary background on the biology and on the ethics so that we can eventually do the bioethical analysis. And it's kind of generally, it's a two-step thing, right? The general format for each lecture. Uh, first, I present the basic biology or the clinical aspect if we're talking about something in healthcare. And then once we understand and we're all on the same page with regards to what nature is doing, right? Uh, then we do the ethical analysis based on that. Mm -hmm. Do you find it sometimes that you have to level the playing field regarding the definition of morality and the definition of ethics itself? Like what does those things mean? Yes, thank you. And that opens for another bit of uh, dialogue and information here, which is bioethical systems, right? And basically uh, we can reduce it, uh, in my opinion, down to two systems that are mutually uh, exclusive of each other, two bioethical systems or ways of thinking. One is going to be what we call utilitarian or pragmatism, and the other one is going to be principled bioethics, 
principal bioethics. And at the end of the day, over so many decades that I've been involved in teaching and learning and all this, I would say that the big distinction between those two camps on how each one of those camps does bioethics is the following. We have the means and the ends. So the end is typically the goal, what we want to achieve, et cetera, right? And the goals could be good goals, but the means also need to be justified in the principal camp, which is the Catholic way of doing bioethics. There's another way of doing bioethics, which is utilitarian, which says basically that the end justifies the means. As long as the end is good, whatever means to get there, that's fine. But they also say, you know, don't break the law. So as long as it's legal, then we can go with it because the end is a good end. For example, we stick with with we can stick with uh, with abortion if you want, or there's so many topics. Mm-hmm. Um, we can stick with abortion because of Roe v. Wade, and it's uh, it's a current topic. Mm. So the the pregnant mom, let's say the extreme case of rape or incest, right? Obviously that woman did not want that child. She happened, by the way, most women who um, undergo the violence of uh, rape or incest do not get pregnant, lower percentage than the national average. Psychologically, she's rejecting that that aggressor, but also her body is rejecting the sperm of the aggressor, (laughs) which is something very, very interesting uh, because of the complexity of uh, human conception, uh, the biochemical complexity. But anyway, um, so in the case of rape and incest, it's an extreme case. And people will say, well, you know, this woman really didn't want to uh, be pregnant. This, this, this child is totally out of order. She had planned to go into medical school and had all this career ahead of her. And now all of a sudden she has to be uh, a mom full time, right? And take care of this kid. It's an injustice. And therefore, uh, she should have the right to, to uh, have an abortion, which means to kill that child in her womb. All right. And we say, well, the ends are very good. She should be a medical doctor if, if really her heart is at it and she has the capacity to do it and so on and so forth. But we have another life in there. You know, there's another life, too. And so the means that are used also need to be ethical means. All right. And uh, it's not enough to say, well, as long as it's legal, because that's what we call legalism. Uh, the law cannot cover every aspect of our lives because it would be too intrusive. The law really is kind of minimalist, just to maintain civility in society so that we can function without uh, really being at each other's throat. I'll give you another example how the law cannot cover every case. For uh, I'm hoping that everyone will agree that adultery is immoral, is wrong, and should never be done. But when was the last time you saw someone getting arrested for adultery? It doesn't happen. And yet adultery is happening right now. Sadly, it's totally unethical, but people don't get arrested for it. Or even lying. Lying is a horrible thing. It's, uh, lying is one of the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, and yet people lie all the time. So the law cannot cover every aspect of our daily lives because it would be just too intrusive. What are we going to put cameras inside? Uh, bedrooms and then ask, well, show you mar- your marriage certificate if you're having intercourse with someone else to see if it's, uh, if it's legal or not. Impossible. So the law is minimal, right? Just to maintain civility. But our conscience goes above and beyond the law. And we have to act in an ethical way, even when it's not illegal. 
right? And that's the other camp, that's the principal uh, bioethics, which is what, what I teach, and it's the Catholic uh, bioethics, which stands that the means also have to be justified. Not just the end, the end may be a good end, but the means also have to be good means to get us there. Hmm? So you also mentioned the end of life. So how does bioethics look there? Yes, so also the end of human life. And we see that really in the lifespan of the human from the nine months in the womb until the end of our lives, if we die naturally at old age, we see that the two most vulnerable times of our life when we are most dependent on other people are precisely the beginning and end of our life. The difference is at the end of life, it gets a little more complicated because at the beginning of life, like uh, we were talking, we all begin as one cell and that cell, that zygote is either dead or alive, all right? And then we go from there in the, um, in the embryonic development. But at the end of life, we literally have trillions of cells and they don't all die at the same time. <laughs> And so we have to look rather at organ systems and the vital organs. So that's where we begin with end of life. We look at vital organs. And if a vital organ has begun to die irreversibly, then we can say that the death process has begun. But that death process may be subtle, not very uh, striking at first, not very dramatic, but real nonetheless, because by definition, a vital organ is keeping me alive. All right, so when the vital organ is, has begun to fail irreversibly, we can say that the death process has begun, but it's going to be a process. It may take a few days, a few weeks, months, or maybe even years. Mm -hmm. So how do we deal with the issues at the end of life? Again, the dignity and the sanctity of human life is paramount here. So we look at what are basic needs like nutrition, hydration, shelter, human interaction, and then we look at what we call ordinary means or extraordinary means of life support. There's a lot of guidance from the Catholic Church there also. There are advanced directives that are Catholic, living wills and all this. There are websites what, that people can go to. Because again, at the end of life, all these documents uh, that are online, and not all of them are going to be Catholic. All right. So when you are filling out advanced directives or a living will or something like that, you have to make sure that it is Catholic because it will uphold the principles that we hold dear precisely. Uh, it's, it's okay to allow a person to die, but it's not okay to kill a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we make those critical distinctions between life and death also at the end. Mm -hmm. Got it. And regarding environmental, which is the third mm -hmm. aspect that you mentioned that you, that you look into. So environmental bioethics is, again, an increasing topic nowadays. Uh, for example, think of uh, climate change, right? And all the controversy that is there. Now, keep in mind that there is also a link here that happens between technology, economy, and politics, right? Because, of course, we are a very technological society, and technology keeps advancing, uh, the sophistication that we have today is just amazing. Think of the James Webb Telescope, for example, that is out there thousands and thousands and thousands of miles taking digital uh, photos of uh, the universe, the old universe, and transmitting them, that into Earth. I mean, it's just mind boggling the technological capacity that we have today. And so technology can also translate into economy. 
right? Think of all the gadgets that we use, the electronic gadgets and all that cell and the built-in obsolescence, how we have to uh, upgrade our computers and our phones and all that every two, three, four years, whatever. So technology also feeds the economy. And if there's going to be economy involved and finances, then sooner or later, there's going to be politics involved, right? And policy and all that. Uh, think of fossil fuels, for example. And so when issues become politicized, they can also get a little twisted and spun. There's a spin, right? The political spin. And we start getting away from the purity of the issue itself. And we start going into ideologies that we have to be careful with because not all ideologies are going to be uh, the same. Again, we have to go back to our Catholic roots, which are spectacular because our Catholic roots are very deep. When we do bioethics, whether human life or environmental, we allow nature, so we follow what we call natural law, all right? A natural law is what nature tells us. We allow nature to tell us what is happening uh, objectively. And then from there, we do the, the bioethical analysis. So looking at the environment, we have seen that, uh, first of all, climate is changing all the time, but it's in long term, typically measured in thousands or better hundreds of thousands of years or even millions of years. Uh, whereas weather changes on a daily basis. The most obvious change in weather is between day and night <laughs> when it's light or dark, right? Which make a big difference for photosynthesis, for example, in plants. So weather is changing daily and even hourly and the long-term accumulation of weather eventually will make climate trends, right? If the earth is warming or cooling, we know from geological evidence and studying mostly uh, CO2 bubbles in air that is trapped in the ice caps, right? Look, uh -huh. consider the, the sophistication of technology, the CO2 gas that is trapped in microscopic bubbles in, in, in uh, the ice, ice cores, in the North Pole or the South Pole. That's when they extract those ice long cores or so they yes. bore down to see. Exactly. Okay, they perfect. Slice them and they measure actually the concentration of CO2 within a, a, a bubble that could be microscopic from atmosphere that was there thousands or tens of thousands of years ago. <laughs> okay, it's so true. very sophisticated. Pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> because, for example, right now the, the, um, concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere that we have is like uh, 0.004 or something like that percent. You know, it's a tiny amount. It's a fraction uh, of 1%, of very, very tiny amount. But that CO2 is increasing. Anyway, before I get there, I want to say that from that geological evidence and the cores and all that, we know that there have been at least five ice ages, five uh, glacial periods in the history of the earth as such, all right? And those have happened in the past half billion years. So we have evidence that has been climate change from a winterization of the earth where, where essentially the whole Northern hemisphere is covered with ice. I'm talking about one or two miles of ice on top of us, all right? Those are the, the glaciers. Uh, to the other extreme, what we call the tropicalization of the earth where all that ice has been melted and there's been no ice, natural ice on earth, 
including the poles. So then we have a higher sea level, maybe one or 200 feet of uh, salt water on top of us. <laughs> so those yeah. are the two extremes. And we have evidence that there've been five of those throughout uh, geologic uh, time. But now there, we seem to be heading into a sixth one. And the big difference is precisely CO2. CO2 is now increasing exponentially, all right? And it correlates with, or at least associates with, since the industrial revolution, the past 250 years, more or less, 250 to 300 years, when we started using fossil fuels big time to heat water, to generate steam, to run the steam engine and all that. And to this day, fossil fuels are the cheapest source of energy for industry, big industry, right? So there's the economics of it. And uh, so this new increase in CO2, which is exponential, it's just going off the charts like that, uh, is anthropogenic. Anthropogenic meaning that is generated by humans, right? By human activity. Okay. And so it engages us directly in our human activity. We are literally warming up the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that has consequences. Uh, some other shorter term, longer, longer term. Um, but to say that because this summer is extremely hot, then that's evidence for climate change? No, because that's just what we call noise. That's just fluctuation from one year to another. And one year to another doesn't make really climate. It just makes weather. <laughs> okay, It makes the annual weather. It makes it's sense now. But we're heading that way, and it's still at the log phase, the logarithmic phase, which is a very fast increase. So we have to pay attention. If we don't, then we are going to suffer the consequences of the tropicalization of, of the earth, all right? And especially coastal areas will get flooded and all that. But even saying all that, what is most dramatic right now, what is the greatest impact on nature with regards to bioethics, it's not so much the climate change, climate change a little more long-term. We find that there is a very uh, fast rate now of extinction. Extinction rate, again, is going exponential. There's always a background extinction rate. In other words, species are always, new species are arising and uh, other species are dying off, all right? Okay. So there's like a background extinction rate that is going on, right? But now we find that again, that extinction rate is going up very fast, more exponential. For example, when's the last time you saw a salamander? Amphibians are delicate, amphibians are getting it right now, all right? They're dying off. And um, that may be also anthropogenic, but it's not necessarily uh, related to climate change because that's more long-term. It's related to loss of habitat they're running out of place where to live. So that relates with urbanization, with the growth and development of our human population and where to live, where, where to live. But there's the complexity of the argument. We have to live somewhere because we're not, we cannot live in thin air, you know, floating in the air. So what we call the footprint, what is our footprint? How to minimize our footprint and that footprint to be eco-friendly, ecologically friendly so that we can coexist with the nature that surrounds us. So the creative idea would be, for example, urban parks, urban forests to generate within the city, within the urban area, dedicated areas of natural preserve where animals and plants can grow and live there. And if you generate enough of these within a city, you actually are creating patchwork 
of nature where plants and animals can migrate from one to another and kind of coexist with, with humans, with urbanicity. So you see urban forest is a big topic right now. And even urban uh, gardens, just the backyard, because an urban forest could be a city block or five, 10 city blocks, but um, an urban garden, just the backyard, instead of mowing it, you can let it grow naturally and so forth. See? So those are the environmental bioethics issues, some of them. <laughs> and in bioethics, with the beginning of life, the end of life, and the environmental aspect of it, where do you see God in bioethics? Oh, all over the place. That's one of the things that took me to uh, to the priesthood, actually. is um, And it's very interesting. I always find this fascinating that the same object will take some people to God, and that very same object looked at a different way. Other people will say, well, that's the evidence why there is no God. And nature is one of those, because uh, I've always loved nature. I grew up uh, when I was a little kid in Cuba next to the beach, and I would take, uh, when I was a little kid, I would catch uh, crabs, ghost crabs, I will take them apart, disarticulate them because I found it fascinating that the legs were all articulated like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I've always been fascinated by nature and I love nature. And you look at a sunrise or a sunset and you say with all the beautiful, gorgeous colors of orange and the clouds sliding up and all, you say, how can there not be a God, right? The awesome beauty of nature. Mm. And but yet other people, uh, particularly some scientists uh, that I know will say, well, I can explain to you perfectly why the beautiful colors that you're watching, because that is the rays of the sun coming through the atmosphere and they're being filtered. And of course, the, the lower um, wavelengths are gonna penetrate further. And that's what you see on the clouds and so on and so forth. And then it can give you a full explanation of why the clouds have lit up in orange. Right. And they say, so we have a perfect explanation for that. So therefore, that is the proof that there is no God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, definitely in nature, I do see a God. And um, there's a term that we have in science that is elegance, the elegance of a mechanism. When you see all the, the biochemical pathways that need to be happening right now, for us to be able to communicate and for me to articulate anything intelligible and for you to perceive that and translate it because what you're getting in your ear is sound waves. And then to translate that into something, into a thought, right? In a specific language, that really is short of miraculous because mm -hmm. all the biochemical pathways that have to occur for that to happen. When we run out of explanations in, in nature and science, we say it's elegant. <laughs> it's elegant. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember having a similar feeling when um, some study came out with the, with the amount of emotions a human can express. Oh, wow. And then it, they, it was a map that they've made and it was right. just, a, it was just so many emotions right. broken down, you know, right. from anger to love and how they're, they're, they're in the same group, you know, how they can feel yes. different, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, we can experience all these things and all the complex, all the complexity that comes from that is mm -hmm. like you said, miraculous. <laughs> It is, it is. There is a lot. So it's humbling. When we study nature, we have to approach it with a humility, right? That we're really just scratching the surface. And um, Einstein used to have an analogy of the um, a light 
and say we are in a dark room and we shine a light on the wall. So the light is what we know, and there is a perimeter to that light that that's what we don't know, the darkness. Now, is we walk away from the wall with the flashlight, the light becomes bigger. So in time, we understand more. But as we understand more, the circle, the perimeter also gets bigger. So the more we know, the more we don't know. And new questions mm -hmm. arise, right? New questions arise. And that's really the challenge and the opportunity, like they say in the business world, of doing bioethics, of, of interacting with scientists and uh, philosophers, theologians, so that we may end up doing what is good and right for humanity and not destroying nature and destroying ourselves in the process. Mm. You mentioned about the Catholic aspect of uh, bioethics. Uh, it's a beautiful question because Look, we have uh, Pope Francis now who took that name precisely after Francis of Assisi, who was a lover of nature and human nature. And Pope Francis wrote the first encyclical in the history of the Catholic Church in the 2000 history, uh, 2000 year history, dedicated to the environment and to the poor. It was uh, written uh, seven years ago now in 2015, Laudato Si, one of, one of his first documents when he became Pope. Laudato Si is old Italian and is the first couple of words of the famous Cantico uh, of the Son of St. Francis, right? St. Francis had a little poem that is called the Cantico of the Son. Blessed are you God for brother sun and sister moon and mother earth, you know, he just befriends all of nature around him. And that is the first, the opening phrase, blessed are you Lord. So laudato si means praise be the Lord. And that's the name and the subtitle of that encyclical is care for our common home, right? Care for our common home. In, on social media, since we mentioned science, it, sometimes, I have to explain to people that the faith, the Catholic faith, is not separate from science because people claim that science and Catholicism are separate. Can you can you take a stab at that, please? Yes, thank you. There's a lot of misconception there on both sides, right? Both on the scientific side and on the religious side that they don't mix and scientists cannot be religious and vice versa. Uh, I think that uh, St. John Paul II did a lot to bridge that gap uh, for one, for example, he exonerated, uh, he rescinded the supposed excommunication of Galileo about 500 years later, <laughs> but uh, it, it was symbolic, right? Mm -hmm. And also it was John Paul II who wrote a document, I think it was 1995, on evolution. Uh, it's a small uh, little letter where it says basically in a nutshell that we, uh, as long as uh, science or the theory of evolution does not deny the possibility of the existence of God, we have no problem with evolution. In fact, I teach evolution at St. Thomas University as part of the curriculum of the Masters in Bioethics. And even Darwin, Charles Darwin, right, the father of evolution, as a young, first of all, Darwin, several of his teachers were clerics, Anglican, of course, from the UK, and, uh, and himself was thinking about the priesthood when he was a young lad before he went on that famous voyage of the ship, the Beagle, uh, that extended into five years. And that's basically where he developed uh, the, 
the beginnings of his theory. Um, but even Darwin at some point says, you know, leaves it open, where does uh, God fit into all this? But what, uh, what evolution is doing is explaining a how, a how, a process. But the big questions of why, you know, why we're here, who are we, where do we come from, where do we go? Those are metaphysical questions. Those are questions that go beyond the physical, the organic, all right? And those are the questions of faith and religion. Uh, but the question of science is a question of process, of mechanism, of how. And that's why evolution fits in perfectly because it does give us a mechanism for explaining how some species emerge from other species given, the, given uh, in general long periods of time. So there is a beautiful dialogue that is going on right now between science and faith, right? Uh, or science and religion. Uh, one society, for example, that uh, I recently joined is the um, Society of Catholic Scientists, right? And in that society, there are lay scientists, but there are also priests and nuns who are, have doctorates in science, in physics, in chemistry, in biology, in geology, you name it. And so there is a beautiful dialogue that is going on right now. It completes the picture. People have heard of Darwin, but some people may have heard of Gregor Mendel. Gregor Mendel is known as the father of genetics. And he was literally a father. He was an Augustinian priest. Mm -hmm. And he was contemporary to uh, Darwin, but Mendel was living in Brno, what is today the Czech Republic, all right, in continental Europe. But they were contemporaries. And Mendel is the one who did all the experiments with the peas and the different colors of the peas and all that. And he came up with the genetics, uh, the inheritance factors that he called them back then because the DNA was not known yet, right? We did not have that sophistication of technology. But he essentially, by looking at the characteristic of the peas, what we call the phenotype, developed the theories of inheritance of genetics. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, they, uh, they didn't know of each other so that later at the beginning of the 1900s, that was a famous synthesis that was done, the biological synthesis between uh, the theory of evolution and the theory of genetics to combine them to give us a full picture of how nature is uh, really working in a great level of detail. Mm -hmm. So since you mentioned evolution, where do we stand in terms of like, for those that don't know, because it's, it's, it's been, yeah. I remember when I was younger, that was a, that was an issue, you know, evolution, right. human evolution, we come from apes, blah, 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 but there's no link, but then there is a link, but then there is no true link. So where, where do we stand? Yeah. Right. So again, we start from the facts and we look at nature and the fossil record is undeniable. You know, if I have a bone in front of me that's fossilized and then I can measure the date of that bone or even the skeleton or a skull, then that's a fact, that's a biological fact, right? And then we do the analysis based on that. And there has been an evolution, but uh, that's at the organic level. Again, where faith and religion and spirituality comes in is that is the soul, the human soul, right? When does God grant a soul to a human being or to humanity as a species? Hmm? In fact, it, we have in science, two terms, one term that is called mitochondrial Eve, which is very interesting because our cells, each cell in our body 
has different little organelles within them. And the organelles are the equivalent of organs for the whole body. In other words, just like organs make our body function, within the cell, each individual cell, which is microscopic, there are these little tiny mm, structures that have particular function. One of those structures is called a mitochondrion, and they generate energy for the cell. They are like the energy factory of the cell, all right, for all the metabolic processes. And those mitochondria are uh, inherited maternally. Why? Because they're in the egg. Sperm has very little cytoplasm, and it does have a few mitochondria in it, but I, when fertilization happens, most of those sperm mitochondria are destroyed by, uh, by the egg. The bulk of our mitochondria in our bodies actually come from our mother, all right? And it turns out that these little mitochondria, they also have a little bit of DNA, their own DNA. It's actually called mitochondrial DNA. And so basically we can trace that DNA through our maternal line because my mitochondrial DNA in every cell of my body comes from my mother because the egg came from my mother, right? And my mother's uh, mitochondrial DNA came from her mother and her mother from her mother and so forth. So we can trace the maternal DNA, mitochondrial DNA back, back, back in time, literally hundreds of thousands of years. And we can trace that from taking samples from uh, all uh, human beings in different parts of the world. And they converged into a single female. So we can say scientifically, biologically, that all humans came from a single female, right? Okay. About 200,000 years ago, give or, give or take maybe 100 years, 100,000 years, <laughs> right? Uh, science have named that female, that first woman, uh, mitochondrial Eve, <laughs> precisely because yeah. it can be phrased that way. And then on the male side, the counterpart for that, well, what is it genetically that is unique to men is the Y chromosome, the Y chromosome, right? Because females have XX chromosomes, we have XY. So that Y chromosome is inherited by my father. And it's what the one that determines the sex. It's in the, it's in the sperm, all right? So 50% of sperm have X chromosomes and 50% have Y chromosomes. And it just depends which sperm fertilizes the egg if that uh, zygote, if that child is gonna be uh, a man or a woman. If it's an X sperm that fertilizes, then you get X plus X, that will be a girl. But if it's a Y sperm, you get XY, so that embryo, that uh, zygote will be a male. All right, so we can trace our Y chromosome paternally. And so my Y chromosome came from my father and my father's Y chromosome came from his father and so forth. So we can do the Y chromosome tracing just like we do the mitochondrial DNA and we come up with Y chromosome atom. In other words, we can trace all that lineage back again, hundreds of thousands of years to a single man, a single male. <laughs> Yeah, Y chromosome atom. So actually, science today has kind of corroborated the uh, <clears throat> the biblical narrative that was described to humans back several thousand years ago, or maybe a thousand years when the when the Old Testament was written, 
in non-scientific terms, in pre-scientific, because the scientific revolution had not taken place and we just did not have a scientific mentality back then. It was related in an anecdotal way that people would understand that God is the creator, all right? But he created them, male and female, in his image and likeness. So there's a lot of uh, corroboration, if you will, between science and faith today when we interpret both correctly, all right? Correctly. The Bible is not a scientific book. It's a unique book. It's unique in literature, all right? And we cannot interpret the Bible literally because as Catholics, we are not fundamentalists. We take exception. Otherwise, we would, if we were fundamentalists and we would interpret the Bible literally, we would run into deep problems. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself said, if your eye makes a sin, pluck it out. And if your hand makes a sin, cut it off. Now, who of us can honestly say, right, honestly looking into our conscience, that my eye has never made me sin and my hand has never made me sin in almost 70 years of age? I cannot say that. I would have no hands and no eyes. Exactly. And I'm not going to pluck out my eyes and I'm not going to cut off my hands because no. I am convinced exactly that Jesus does not want me to mutilate my body. What he wants me is to not sin. So he's using emphatic language. He's using emphatic language, just like at the time in his, uh, Hispanics, we also use emphatic language, right? We love soccer and we say everybody was at the stadium mm -hmm. watching the World Cup, you know, but everybody is 8 billion people and 8 billion people don't fit in a stadium. So not everybody was literally at the stadium, you know, but it's estimated that actually about half of the world's population do watch the World Cup one way or another. So it's a lot of people. We just use emphatic language and Jesus was part of his culture also. See, and that's why we don't, um, uh, we have to be careful when we interpret the Bible, we allow the church to help us to interpret the Bible, but we don't interpret it literally every single passage. Otherwise we run into deep problems. Hmm? And the story of Adam and Eve, since you mentioned them, yeah. is is that is that a I guess a literal situation that happened, or is it just more to tell a story? At what level? You know, we have to ask. Mm, that's a good question. Mm, like the same. What do you mean? Que senso? In what sense? At what level? All right. So we have the six days of creation, and then on the seventh day, God rested, as if God needed rest, right? <laughs> so that rest, of course, that is. There are four mm, mm, traditions that feed into the book of Genesis, and especially the first three chapters of Genesis have two main traditions, what is known as the priestly tradition and the Yahwist tradition. And then there's a third one that's called the Elohist tradition, depending on how God is referred as either Yahweh or Elohim. But the first chapter of the book of Genesis definitely comes from the priestly tradition of the Jewish people. And the priestly tradition, I'm talking about the Jewish priest of the, that, who ran the temple in Jerusalem, okay? The big thing for them was the Shabbat, the Sabbath is a day of rest, the seventh day of the week. To this day, we start on Sunday, then Saturday is the seventh day, right? It's a day of rest. And so that first chapter of the book of Genesis, God does everything that he's gonna do, all the creation in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. So that, that tradition, the Jewish people would use, the Jewish priests would use to say, if God rested on the seventh day, who are you not to rest? Right? In other words, the seventh day is dedicated to God. Mm 
For us, it's the Sunday because it's the day of resurrection, right? So that was what I said. But when you follow the narrative of the six days of creation from day one to day six, you see that it follows a natural progress and a natural order that fits perfectly, again, elegantly into the whole process of the evolution of the universe, the evolution of the planetary system and the evolution of earth, and then the evolution of animals and plants on earth, right? Or plants first and then animals. For example, the first day, all right? In the beginning, in the beginning, the earth was a formative wasteland and darkness covered the earth. So it's like a description of chaos, of nothing, right? And then God begins to order things. And the first thing he does is let there be light. So if there's darkness and you shed light, now you know you're in a room, you're in a forest, now you know where you are. So uh, order comes through light, right? Symbolically. So let there be light. And there was light. In other words, the Big Bang, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, the Big Bang theory was uh, promoted by a, an astrophysicist who was also a, jo a Jesuit priest, Georges Lemaitre, uh, who was uh, Belgian, right? And he was an astrophysicist and he was also a priest. And uh, there's a little quote from him that said, uh, some people uh, like to learn about uh, life uh, from, um, from science. Other people like to uh, investigate life or the universe, um, kind of paraphrasing from religion. And I have chosen both, he said, I have chosen both science and religion, right? So the Big Bang Theory stands today with some uh, qualifications and some adjustments, but it's still the prevailing theory of the origin of the universe. From nothing, something. In fact, from nothing, everything. <laughs> Right? from the moment of singularity, everything that is, and the expanding universe. And then the Hubble telescope confirmed that the, that the universe is in fact expanding and insects actually accelerating, right? So if we reverse the clock, uh, it would go back into a single point, right? That is called singularity. So that first day is um, a description of the origin of the universe in a very poetic language, right? Non-scientific. But then what defines, so the word day is yom in, in uh, Hebrew. It's not a day of 24 hours because that day of 24 hours actually came from the Roman calendar, from the Roman empire. Actually, it's a period of time. So when we ditch the word day or, or as a 24 hour period, and instead we insert a discrete period of time, it fits beautifully into the evolutionary development of the universe and, and then even life on earth. Again, we don't interpret the Bible literally, the word literal, the word day, because the luminaries, the greater luminary and the lesser luminary, right? Meaning the sun and the moon were only created on the third day. And what defines a day of 24 hours for us? Well, the rotation of the earth around from sun, uh, from light or no light. So it's the sun really that is defining a day for us. And how can we have a day without a sun, right? When the sun was only created on the third day. So that yom of the Hebrew is not a day of 24 hour. It just means a discrete period of time. So that's 
how we don't interpret the Bible literally, but we look at what is known as the sensus plenior, the deeper sense, the deeper meaning of the passage. Mm -hmm. And the culmination of creation is precisely the human, right, on the sixth day. And that's the culmination. Why the culmination? Because we, and only we, are God's image. And we are specifically God's image in our intellect and our will. No other creature on earth has the intellect and the will that we have, you know, the volition, precisely the volition to do right or wrong. When a lion kills a zebra in the Sahara, in the, in the, um, in the savannah of, uh, of uh, Africa, we don't put that lion in, in prison, you know, for killing a zebra. <laughs> That's not mm -hmm. murder. That's survival. But when a human kills another human, uh, then that's, uh, that's murder, you know. So we have these two beautiful capacities that come from God, and it's how we use them. So you mentioned evolution, the, the, the Eve and the, and the Adam in, in their DNA, right? So how is it the connection with the whole discussion that people you say, are we connected to the apes or not? Or is it, you know, because you also, you also mentioned the part of like when God gives a soul, how do you, how do we wrap up that connection of evolution with? Right. Okay. So did we come from the ape or did the ape come from us or what's <laughs> happening with the monkey? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, I grew up with the monkeys when I was <laughs> a young child. I grew up also in the age of the Beatles, but uh, some people may remember uh, you're old as I am, that back then there was an American group that came up to kind of do the counterpart of the, of the British uh, Beatles, and it was called the Monkeys. We are the Monkeys. <laughs> they behave like monkeys. It was a, it's a rock group <laughs> from the 60s. <laughs> That's how ancient I am. All right. So it's, they're uh, still very popular, the Beatles. <laughs> the Monkeys are still around? I no, the, the Beatles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. I know. <laughs> They're still around. <laughs> All right. So, right. Um, we don't derive from the monkey and the monkey does not derive from us. Okay. Because mm -hmm. we have a saying in evolution, you cannot have contemporary ancestors. Again, by definition, an ancestor is someone from previous generations. You know, my great, great, great grandparents are not contemporary to me right now because they are ancestors. So you cannot have contemporary ancestors. And if we look around in other parts of the world, there are monkeys, right? And they're humans. So monkeys and humans today are contemporaries and therefore we cannot derive from each other. We are contemporary species. But what we have is a common ancestor. We have common ancestors. And in fact, uh, don't get scandalized, but we have common ancestor even with a fly. <laughs> we looked it up the other day in genetics and this common ancestry, right, that we can look up. It's called percentage homology of the DNA, the DNA sequence of the single molecule of DNA, which is humongous. If we were to stretch out a single DNA molecule from our cells in front of us, it would be about six feet long, two meters, all mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so it's a huge molecule. It's got billions of atoms, right? In fact, the, the code, the actual code is called the bases or nucleotides, base pairs or nucleotide pairs. That's where the genetic code actually is, right? So we have a genetic homology or compatibility with the chimpanzee, which is our closest, uh, our closest, um, uh, I don't want to say neighbor, but uh, um, the species that is closest to us, 
biologically is a chimpanzee, right? Pan tranquilitis. It's 99% homology. 99%. In other words, 99% of our DNA is identical to the DNA of a chimpanzee. So yeah. it's only 1% difference between them and us. Like the French say, la petite différence, okay? That little difference of 1% makes a huge difference, makes us either chimpanzee or human, but it's there, okay? We share 98% homology with the gorilla, 97% homology with the orangutan, and about, I think it's about 40 or 60% homology with a fly, with a house fly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Those are mostly the developmental genes that kick in early on that make us, you know, animal, <laughs> all right? So this percentage homology happens with all species. And that's how we can form what we call a phylogenetic tree or the tree of life or the evolutionary tree. So all species on earth have common ancestors. All right, oh, that's what I was looking for. Our closest uh, relative today is, is uh, the chimpanzee by species. Uh, but we diverged. So the common ancestor between the chimp and the human is traced to about 6 million years ago, about 6 million years ago. In other words, Six million ago, six million years ago, there were no humans, there were no chimpanzees, but there was an anthropoid, there was a an ape-like creature that was about three feet tall, more or less, and we have fossil records of it, uh, and that was the common ancestor. And eventually, that anthropoid diverged into two lines. One line became the the. Uh, the, uh, they're known as the gorillini, where the chimp and the gorilla and the, uh, the orangutans develop. And the other line is known as the hominini, where the humans developed, right? And we have several ancestors that were also of the species homo. You know, there are definitions scientifically as homo sapiens, right? But there were other homo genus that were not sapiens. Like for example, Neanderthal. Neanderthal, we coincided with Neanderthal up until about 40,000 years ago, which is very recent in evolutionary time. In Europe, we coexisted with Neanderthal. And in fact, if you do that, um, what is it? Um, uh, ancestry. Uh, yes, that, where you swab your mouth and it tells you. Yes, where you DNA uh, and me or whatever it is, ancestry and me or something like that. See, see, see. 21 and me. Uh, okay, you, the result will come back. And we have, you know, we have Chinese in us, we have African in us, everybody's a big mix. And a small percentage of that is also Neanderthal, <laughs> yes. okay? And we have deciphered the Neanderthal DNA because they have been, this has been Neanderthal tissue that has been found. And so not just uh, fossils, but uh, actual tissue with DNA that has been deciphered and has been uh, the, the code. So we can tell the percentage homology and we all have a little bit of Neanderthal within us, which means that our ancestors that were living back there were already Homo sapiens or our species, all right? Had, uh, when they were living with Homo Neanderthalis, there was interbreeding that went on, mm -hmm. some interbreeding. And so we have uh, these common ancestors that go back and the further back we go, you know, the further away we are from other species. But uh, this percentage homology, that's the current uh, thing with, uh, with genetics, 
we can do what is known as a phylogenetic tree. So then this brings up the question of the soul, of the human soul, which is unique to the human, right? Um, and uh, we can look at the human soul from two angles, at the individual level or at the level of the species, all right? So it's what we call the um, ontogeny or the phylogeny of the human. Again, we take the word apart. Onto is individual, right? Onto is being. Uh, the word geni or genesis is origin. So ontogeny is the origin of the individual. Phylogeny is the origin of the group, of the phylum, of, of the species as a whole. So the ontogeny of the human is at fertilization, and at that moment, God grants us all. And so to make any other species, it takes two. It takes a male and a female. But to make a human, it takes three. It takes a male and a female, my dad and my mom, but it also took God because as much as they would have wanted, my mother and my father could not give me a soul. The most they could give me is an egg and a sperm. In other words, the genetics, the species, right? So my father and my mother gave me the species. They made me human. But God is the author of each soul, which is individual, simple, not made of parts, and eternal. It has an origin, but has no finish, has no end. The end is eternal life, all right? And only God can do that because my parents cannot create a soul. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you see, so that's the intervention of God there, directly individual with each human being that is conceived. That's at the individual level. How about the species? You know, if we go back to our ancestry, how far back can we go to this mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam? So that dovetails and they, yes, they are real people, but the words are symbolic, especially for Adam. And, and the this, words? The words are symbolic, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve words are symbolic in this sense. Okay, so they were real people. Yes. But, but their names are also symbolic? Right, exactly. Okay. Why we call them Adam and Eve. So again, we go into the Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, but I've studied a, a few of these crucial words just for the teaching purpose, and it's Genesis 2, right? So in Genesis 1, that narrative ends with the creation of uh, the, the man and the woman, male and female, but it, it, they're nameless. In Genesis 2, which is not the priestly tradition, that priestly tradition ends on the seventh day, God resting. Genesis 2 is a different narrative of the origin of the human. That's when Yahweh, right, which is the Yahweh's tradition is a very close God, is a God who walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? It's a very human God. Uh, it's a partner with, with the human. He creates first Adam, and it's a play on word, because the actual word in Hebrew is ha-adam, ha-adam. And earth, soil, dirt, mud is in Hebrew is called ha-adama. So it's a plain word. God creates ha-adam from ha-adama. So he takes the mud, the soil, and molds it into a human, right? He makes a statue, <laughs> a figure, and then blows the ruah, the breath of life, into his nostrils, all right? The breath 
And so for a non-scientific society, they understand, okay, so he, God is the potter, and there's reference from the, from the prophets talking about the potter, making the pottery. Just the other day, there was uh, that, that, uh, that passage in Jeremiah, it's one of the daily masses. Uh, if the potter is not happy with the, with the potter, with the pot that he's uh, generating, he would break it up and use the same mud to generate the other figure that he wants, all right? So these are analogous language that the people don't understand at the time because those were things that they were used to understanding, all right? And, um, and that's Genesis 2, which is the Yahweh's tradition, not the priestly, but now it's the Yahweh's tradition. Then And then God plays a trick on Adam. God is a trickster. Because he creates Adam first, then he puts Adam to sleep, not kill him, but just literally sleep, right? And then he takes out a rib and generates woman. So from man comes woman. Even in Old English, the word is still there. Woman in Old English, that W-O, which can also be V-O, means of, of man. So woman means of man, human. And we see human, the humus is the earth. So human mm -hmm. comes from humus. So ha-adam comes from ha-adama, you see? It's a play on words. Uh, now, um, yes, oh, the trick. The trick of uh, God, Yahweh, to Adam is that he makes Adam, and then he has all the animals process in front of him. Process, like a, a procession, right? And Adam names all the animals. That is also very symbolic. What's in a name? Naming something or someone is knowing something about that. So when Adam names the animals or say, oh yeah, that's a giraffe and that's an elephant and here goes a hippopotamus. He knows the nature because the name is the noun grammatically, the noun, which is also the substantive. And that's philosophically where we get substance. The substance is the essence. The, so our essence is human. Our accident is that we may have a beard or not, and it may be white or black or yellow, all right? But the substance is that we're human. So by Adam naming the animals, he knows the essence of the animals. He's the only one that knows that a lizard is a lizard. A lizard doesn't know it's a lizard, <laughs> mm. okay? And so you see, uh, God processes all the animals in front of Adam and Adam names all of them. But at the end, it says he found no one like himself. And so Adam is lonely and Adam is sad because he has found in all the animal kingdom, he has found no one like himself. And then God puts him to sleep and makes Eve. And when Adam wakes up, he sees Eve, wow, we look at this. Now, this is someone like myself. This I can relate to. This is my other self. And that's the female version of the human. And that's Eve, which is Ewa. The V and the W again are interchangeable, you know, which is of man. So it's a play on word. They existed, you know, but their names were not Adam and Eve. Those okay. are Hebrew words to express symbolically who they were, the first parents of humanity. Hmm? So is there, so you mentioned species, right? All the way back. And then Adam and Eve were real people. Where do they, what is there, is this this, is there this? <laughs> what well, I'm for, those are listening, I'm putting my hands together. Is there a connection there in, exactly. in the line? Exactly, so what we have is in the biblical narrative, a non-scientific 
uh, description of the origin of the human species that it started okay. with one male and one female human right homo at the level of genus homo and we know from the fossil record there are at least six different species anywhere between six and 12 depending on how they're classified um, fossils of uh of the genus homo there's homo erectus there's homo um habilis there's homo uh, heidelbergensis homo sinensis from china homo neardentalis homo sapiens all right so there are about six to uh, to twelve um uh different species of the genus homo they were all anthropoid right they all walked erect on two on two legs only which gives a synergy because what happens when um when we start walking erect and we free up the hands and the hands are not involved in locomotion anymore now the hands are free for making tools which is another characteristic of the human especially tools that make tools because some animals do use uh, very primitive tools for example back to the chimp the chimp will take a twig and will stick it in a termite hole right and then the termites will crawl on top of the twig and then the chimp will proceed to eat the termites <laughs> Yes. Uh, so that's a tool, but a tool that makes a tool. In other words, take one stone and hit another stone to create an edge, to, to create a cutting edge, to create essentially a knife, all right, or or a, or a arrowhead. That tool to make another tool, no animal has done that. Only the human, and that's the, the beginning of technology. Okay. You fast forward that today to the James Webb. <laughs> and and our homo that includes that, that includes Adam and Eve, right? Those individuals, yes. the yes. ones that got created mm -hmm. with the with the I like the phrase of breath of life, right? Yes. Which which one is it? Yes. So definitely uh, Homo sapiens, all right. Now the question is, uh, at least in my mind, looking at the question for a number of years, Homo neanderthalis which is our closest relative in the evolutionary scale, all right? They're not human, but they are Neanderthal. They look similar to us. They actually had a larger brain capacity. They have uh, 1,500 cubic centimeters of uh, brain capacity, whereas our average is about 1,350. Uh, but um, did they have a soul? So I look at some other things, for example, burying the dead. Why would any species bury the dead? There are no other species that buries their dead. There are some anecdotes of uh, some species staying with their dead animals, especially if it's a dead offspring, like uh, elephants, for example, and also dolphins, the female, the mother dolphin will continue to push the baby, the dead baby to the surface because she knows that he needs to breathe from the surface until finally she gets tired and lets go of that dead baby, all right? Uh, but no other animal buries their dead. Okay. Why would you bury their dead? Not only bury them, but you don't bury them naked. You bury them with the finest clothing, with all the jewelry, and even with food inside the tomb. So, I mean, is that talking about an afterlife? Absolutely, right? It's talking about a voyage. And all ancient cultures have that. And the most primitive burials that we have found, that go back about 10,000 years ago, is some kind of a reference to the afterlife. To the afterlife. Okay. And so we're the only ones who have that. And there is some evidence of a Neanderthal tomb. And that's why 
I would lean to perhaps the Neanderthal also had a soul. Don't be surprised when we get to heaven, we'll see some Neanderthals there. <laughs> got it. Got it. Father, this has been this has been amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> I feel like we could keep going. Like I have more yeah. questions. We're just scratching the surface, <laughs> but take the program. Come to the go to St. Thomas University website, you know, and look up Masters in Bioethics. If you're interested, send me an email and I will send you much more information. Be happy to. We'll do. I'll put all the information in the show notes, those interested in reaching out and learning more about the program. Father, once again, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about bioethics. Thank you, Alejandro, for this and for all your good deed. Keep pumping out there at Catholicity because we have the best. In all humility, we have the best. And we need to share that with everyone who's willing to listen. 